Well, good morning, everyone. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through the first part of verse 9. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 all the way through the first part of verse 9. And um, while you're opening there, as you're opening, I was reminded this week, as I was preparing this message, I was reminded of Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo Baggins. And you might be wondering why. Well, here's why. See, all Bilbo Baggins ever wanted, if you're familiar with the story, if you've read the book and or seen the film, all Bilbo Baggins ever wanted was to live a quiet, boring, predictable, and formulaic life in his home in the Shire. The very last thing Bilbo ever wanted to have was an adventure. Unfortunately for poor Bilbo, an adventure is exactly what he got. And it was an adventure that was set in motion when he received into his home several very strange visitors in the form of Gandalf the wizard and a cadre of dwarves. And it was the arrival of these unexpected visitors that set Bilbo on an unexpected journey. And in a similar way, we're going to read this morning of strange and exotic visitors who arrive in Jerusalem, and they set in motion events, very important events, in the early life of Jesus Christ. And we're going to find also that even at this early phase, even at this very early stage of the life of Jesus Christ, he's already demanding a response. Before he has ever uttered a single word, before he has ever performed a single miracle, Jesus is already drawing a line in the sand and demanding a response. What would the response be? What would the responses be of the various characters in this story? Perhaps more importantly, what will your response be? What will my response be? So I'd like to invite you at this time to stand as you are able as I read from Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read the passage, and I'm going to say a quick prayer, and then we'll get started. Matthew chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Heavenly Father, speak to us this morning out of your word. Let your spirit be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. One of the challenges of biblical interpretation generally, and of preaching especially, is the challenge of keeping one's eye on the ball. What is the main point of the passage I'm considering? 
You see, whatever that main point is has to be the main point of my message. You see, when we read a text like this, it's a very familiar story, but when we read a text like this, it naturally raises several very interesting and very important questions. Who were these wise men? Where did they come from? Why is it that they want to worship Israel's Messiah? How did they even know about Israel's Messiah? What in the world was the star they were following? Again, all those are very, very, very interesting questions. And we are going to attempt some educated guesses as we go forward. But the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is this. Jesus the Messiah demands from all of us a response. Let me say that again. Jesus demands from all of us a response to him. One commentator uh, puts it this way. I like the way he says this. Everything is left out of the picture in order that the full emphasis may be placed on this one thing, namely, we have come to worship him. We are not given a detailed description of the star. We are not told how many magi there were, how they dressed, how they died, or where they were buried. All that, and much more, is purposely left in the shade in order that against this dark background, the light may shine forth all the more brilliantly. These wise men, whoever they were, wherever they came from, came to worship him. And as we go through this story, we're going to find three sets of characters. Three sets of characters, and each set of characters exemplifies three separate responses to Jesus. Number one, the wise men, or the magi. Uh, as we go forward, I'm going to be using those terms interchangeably. They're, they're both correct. They both mean the same thing. I'll be using them interchangeably. So the first set of characters is the magi. And these are Gentiles who come from far away, from a far country, and they come with a response of worship. They have come to worship Jesus. Secondly, the Jewish religious leaders, who, though possessing a thin veneer of religion, seem oddly casual about the birth of their own Messiah. And thirdly is Herod, the king, who is threatened by Jesus, and because he is threatened by Jesus, he responds with hostility. At this point, it's latent, but it's hostility nevertheless. And these three types of responses to Jesus, worship, indifference, and hostility, still characterize men, women, and children today as we go forth with the message of the gospel. And with that said, let's consider the response of the wise men. Matthew chapter 2, and beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, verses 1 through 3 serve to set the scene and introduce Herod and the wise men. 
Now, this text tells us that this, this happened, these events happened after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So by this point, the first Christmas had already passed. No one knows precisely how much time. Uh, some commentators think up to two years. Really impossible to say with certainty, but some time had passed since Jesus was born. We're all used to many nativity scenes that have uh, three wise men standing over the infant Jesus in the manger, flanked by the shepherds of Luke chapter 2. Very common. Probably not the most accurate. In fact, uh, in many uh, liturgical churches, the visit of the wise men is observed on the festival of the Epiphany, which occurs every year on January 6th. So that's coming right up. As for Herod himself, Herod was part of a powerful political dynasty that ruled Judea under Roman authority during the late Second Temple period. Perhaps uh, the ancient equivalent to the Kennedys, Bushes, or Clintons. And this particular Herod was Herod the Great. And he was called Herod the Great because admittedly, despite being a very evil man, admittedly, Herod was a very skilled politician and statesman. And not only was he a very good politician and statesman, he, was, he also undertook uh, several spectacularly successful large-scale building projects, including a renovation of the temple in Jerusalem. But his skill as a politician and as a builder was matched only by his bloodlust. He was also known for his violent paranoia, he even had several of his own family members uh, murdered out of, because of perceived threats to his rule. He would have given Ivan the Terrible a run for his money. In fact, it got so bad that it was reported the emperor in Rome, it was so bad that even the emperor in Rome was reported to have quipped sarcastically that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. There's something else about Herod that I think should be remembered. Herod was not a Jew. He was not Jewish. Herod was an Edomite. And if we remember our Old Testaments, the Edomites were descended from Isaac's son and Jacob's brother Esau. And they were, throughout the Old Testament period, one of Israel's most constant enemies. And this might partially explain why Herod would be so threatened by a new king, one born of natural Jewish ancestry. And it's into Herod's kingdom that enters this caravan from the east, the east being possibly Babylon or Persia, it's not entirely sure. And not to get too sidetracked, but let's consider some possibilities about who these wise men were, how they came to know about Jesus, and how they came to want to worship Israel's Messiah. According to tradition, there were three wise men. And that's probably because they brought three gifts. You remember the three gifts that they brought, right? Gold, frankincense, and... But wait, there's myrrh. I can hear the groans. 
Tradition also gives us the names of the three wise men. Believe it or not, according to later church tradition, the three wise men even had names. Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. But Matthew does not give us this kind of information. This, this, this is not found in Matthew's gospel. In fact, after Matthew chapter 2, the Magi completely disappear and are never again mentioned in the New Testament. So all we can do is make an educated guess as to who they might have been and what their motivations were. And to do that, we will have to take a short detour into the Old Testament. The Greek word for magi or wise men is found four times in the book of Daniel. In chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Daniel, this Greek word for magi appears. And what it signified, what these magi were known to do, what they studied were things like uh, astronomy, astrology, natural sciences, dream interpretation. They, They would have studied sacred writings. These are the kinds of things that they did. And in Daniel chapter 2, you may recall that Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon's king, had a dream. And in that dream, uh, if we remember, uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw the statue, right? It was made of four types of metal except the feet, which were partly of iron, partly of clay. And in the dream, uh, a stone, which is not cut out by human hands, appears and smashes the statue and grows into a mountain that fills the whole world. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted an interpretation of his dream. And he went to his magi, and on pain of death, on pain of instant death, said, you're going to interpret my dream. And if you don't interpret my dream, I'm going to kill you. But it was to Daniel, and to Daniel alone, that God gave the interpretation of the dream. God was revealing the course of human history going forward until the eventual establishment of the kingdom of God. So Daniel interprets the dream, and as a reward, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, Nebuchadnezzar promotes Daniel to chief of the wise men of Babylon. And while we can't be sure, I don't think it's a stretch to think that Daniel, in that position as chief of Babylon's wise men, would have passed on the worship of the true God and the expectation of a coming Messiah. More than that, it's possible the Magi would have been aware of Balaam's prophecy in the book of Numbers. Balaam, uh, if, you remember that, if we remember that story, uh, as Israel is brought out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness, and the Moabite king Balak wants to curse them, and so he hires Balaam. And Balaam came from a city called Pethor, which is from the eastern mountains, from the east in Numbers 23.7, the Greek translation says that Balaam came from Mesopotamia, or Babylon. And in Numbers 24.17, Balaam takes up his oracle. Remember, Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel, but instead he consistently blesses them. In Numbers 24.17, he picks up his oracle and he prophesies of a star that will come out of Israel, and a scepter, a king, who will arise out of Jacob. It's not certain, but I think there's a very strong possibility that these wise men knew of that prophecy. And so when the star appears, it would have triggered memories of that prophecy. Speaking of the star, there are some possibilities that have been suggested by commentators in the past. Uh, A comet, 
a, uh, an alignment of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation Pisces, or uh, a supernatural manifestation of God, a special supernatural manifestation of God that he brought about for this specific purpose. Based on the behavior of the star, it seems to appear, disappear, and reappear, and move north and south, left, uh, north and south, east and west. My inclination is to the last view, but we can't be entirely certain. All we know is that some luminous body guided the wise men from their starting location somewhere in the east and guided them all the way to Jerusalem. And that seems to be all we really need to know. But with that said, let's return to Matthew chapter 2, and I want you to place yourself into the scenario. In fact, I want us all to do that. I want us all to kind of do a role play here. I want us all to place ourselves into the scenario. We're living in Jerusalem, and we're going about our lives, and all of a sudden, this caravan of foreign soothsayers, i.e. Gentiles who practice esoteric arts, they just show up, presumably completely unannounced, and they start asking questions. Questions about a king. Questions about a king, incidentally, not named Herod. We've come to Jerusalem. We're looking for the king, not you. And Herod, for his part, was troubled. In fact, he was more than troubled. The Greek word translated troubled here actually connotes terror. Herod was terrified. Herod's fear is palpable. As for the people themselves of Jerusalem, I suspect that they were scared, or excuse me, troubled, largely because of Herod's well-known penchant for paranoia and violence. And Herod is troubled because now there's a rival claimant to his throne. You see, the magi, as they show up and they start asking questions about a king, uh, they cause quite a stir in the city. They get themselves noticed. You know, you don't just show up into a, a ruler's kingdom asking questions about another king and not attract attention. And I have to believe the magi knew what they were doing. I think they knew that showing up asking questions about a newborn king of the Jews was going to get them noticed. And noticed they were, as the text makes clear. And these Gentiles from a faraway kingdom, they respond to Jesus with worship. With worship. After all, they have dropped whatever it was they were doing in the east traveled by caravan anywhere between 800 and 1,000 miles, most likely, to pay homage to Israel's Messiah. And based on the gifts that they eventually bring, they pay homage with costly sacrifice. And by showing up in Herod's kingdom, asking about another king, they also display tremendous courage. And this theme of Gentiles worshiping Jesus, responding to Jesus in faith and adoration and homage and honor is a theme that Matthew is going to come back to several more times in his gospel. And as we go through the gospel of Matthew, we're going to see this. I'll give you some examples. Chapter 4 of Matthew, verses 12 through 16. Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that a people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. 
in chapter 8. In chapter 8 of Matthew, uh, we remember the centurion, the Roman centurion. He comes to Jesus and he says, my servant is at home and he's sick. In fact, I think he's dying. Just say the word and he will be healed because I'm just like you. I'm a man under authority. I'm just like you. If I tell my people to go, if I give an order, it's followed. You're just like me. We're, just, we're alike. If you give the order, if you say that my servant will be healed, he will be healed. And Jesus marvels. He says, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And many, I say to you, will come from north and south, east and west, and they will sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Gentiles worshiping Jesus, following Israel's Messiah. Chapter 15 in Matthew, similar story. The Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and she says, my daughter is sick, please heal her. And Jesus, once again, like with the centurion, he commends her faith and performs a miracle on her behalf. Later in chapter 15, Jesus is ministering in the region of the Decapolis, a predominantly Gentile region. And while he was there, he heals their sick and feeds the 4,000. And in Matthew 15, verse 31, it is reported, it is recorded, that these Gentiles in the Decapolis, it says, they glorified the God of Israel. And of course, chapter 28, the Great Commission passage in verse 19, Jesus instructs his followers to go into all nations and make disciples. But upon hearing the questioning of the Magi, Herod does not simply sulk. He doesn't just sit around feeling sorry for himself. After hearing the questions of the wise men, he starts asking questions of his own. He decides to be proactive and find out all he can about this rival to his throne. Let's look at verse 4 through verse 6. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod correctly reasons that the king of the Jews is the Messiah. And so what Herod decides to do next is consult the experts. He assembles the chief priests who ministered in the temple and the scribes of the people who would have copied and taught the law of Moses. He assembles them together. This is most likely a reference to the Sanhedrin. And he asks them where the Messiah is to be born. And he receives what appears to me anyway to be a pretty quick answer. Bethlehem of Judea. They, they quote from the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, that identifies Bethlehem, King David's hometown, as the place where Messiah is to be born. Bethlehem is actually two words in the Hebrew language, and it means house of bread. How fitting it is that out of the house of bread would come him who is the bread of life. And Bethlehem was actually a city very near Jerusalem. They were pretty close together. In fact, it was only six miles. Bethlehem is only six miles away from Jerusalem. In fact, it's the same distance 
from here in downtown Bethlehem, down US 98 to the public shopping center in Highland City. It's the same distance. According to Google Maps, and I checked, the average person can cover that distance on foot in about two hours. But Bethlehem, despite its proximity to Jerusalem, was not a very prominent city. It was considered very, a very insignificant city, not unlike Coal Valley, Illinois, or Storm Lake, Iowa. <laughs> but Micah, and now Matthew, <laughs> give Bethlehem new significance as the birthplace of the Messiah. In fact, um, you can still today, even today, you can, you can go to Bethlehem in Israel and you can still visit the Church of the Nativity. It's still there. It's built allegedly over the spot where Jesus was born. It was built by Constantine in the 4th century. It's still there. It's one of the oldest churches in the world. But returning to our text, after answering Herod's question, what do the religious leaders do next? What's their next course of action? Apparently nothing. Notice the indifferent response. They're quick to answer. Herod says, where's the Messiah to be born? Bethlehem. And they even back it up with scripture. Here's the prophet Micah. And then they apparently do nothing. They're slow to do anything about it. In fact, they disappear from the story after this. They just didn't seem to do anything at all. Now we have to be careful here. Arguments from silence can be very slippery, admittedly. But I just find it odd that they don't seem to be excited. The Messiah is to be born. They seem oddly casual and nonchalant about the entire thing. Here are these Gentiles who have come from a long way away and they have given news that Messiah is to be born. And not only is Messiah born, he's born right down the road. You could walk there in two hours. You would think they would be tripping over themselves to go visit their Messiah and their king, and yet, nothing. Nothing. Apparent indifference. Indifference to Jesus is a very common response today. In fact, I find it's the most common response I get when I talk to people about Jesus, when I talk to non-believers. It's the most common response I get, sadly. I'm sure all of us can tell stories. We've tried to talk to people, friends, uh, relatives, co-workers about the Lord, and it just seems like it's all falling on deaf ears, like they're just waiting for you to finish. It's not hostile. It's just indifferent. What a dangerous place to be. What a dangerous place to be. If that describes anyone who can hear me, whether you're here physically, watching on the live stream, or who knows, watching this on YouTube down the road, if you can hear me and your response is one of indifference, I want to invite you to throw away that indifference. Throw it away. Your eternal life and happiness are literally at stake here. We can't afford to be casual. We can't afford to ignore this. We can't afford to be indifferent. Come to Jesus this morning. But if the religious leaders respond to Jesus with apparent indifference, Herod's response is even worse. 
Caleb will go into more detail on this uh, in the coming weeks, but for now, we note that Herod feigns interest in worshiping Jesus, all the while concealing his hatred and hostility and intending to destroy this rival to his throne. Let's look at verses 7 through 9, the first part of verse 9. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Herod continues his inquiry into his rival. Having learned of the place of Messiah's birth, he is now seeking to ascertain the approximate time of the birth of the child. As noted earlier, uh, by this point, most likely some time had passed since Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and Herod is now seeking to determine approximately how much time. But he does so using deception and subterfuge. Earlier, he called the Sanhedrin, and I have to imagine that would have been a matter of public record. But now, he calls for the Magi, and he meets with them secretly. He feigns interest in the star. He's asking all kinds of questions about the star, but in reality, what he's doing is he's gathering intelligence. You see, the time of the star's appearance to the Magi would correspond roughly to the time of the child's birth. Herod had a well-known reputation for cunning, and a well-deserved reputation at that. He tells the wise men to find the child, and under the assumption that they will succeed, he instructs them to report back to him so that, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, he can worship him too. But as Matthew chapter 2 will go on to record, Herod is actually out for blood. Herod is satanically driven to destroy Jesus. See, the wise men respond with worship. The religious leaders apparently respond with casual indifference. But for Herod, his response is one of murderous hostility, which also, sadly, is very common today. Here in the West, that hostility can manifest itself as mockery, insults on social media, economic deprivation via lawsuit, or even assault. In other parts of the world, in addition to the preceding, they also have to face the possibility of imprisonment, torture, and even martyrdom. This was true all through the centuries of church history. According to church tradition, 11 out of the 12 apostles were martyred, and the 12th, John, was exiled to the island of Patmos, where, as we know, he received the revelation. It's believed that Paul was beheaded by Nero and that Timothy was martyred in Ephesus. And this murder and hostility and hatred toward the church has taken many names and taken in many forms throughout the history of the church and even in other parts of the world today, or even here in the West. All over the world and over the centuries, this hostility has taken many forms. The Jewish religious establishment, the Roman Empire, Gnosticism, Islam, the medieval Roman Catholic Church, the Enlightenment, 
the French Revolution, liberal theology, communism, Nazism, Boko Haram, abortion, LGBTQ, the new atheism, and the list goes on. And such is the nature of the present age of overlap between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. Earlier this year, uh, many, of, many of you may remember, I dealt with how Jesus will respond to that. But for now, Herod is responding with hostility. And here's why. Because Jesus is a threat to him. Jesus is a threat. And the world's response of hostility is for the same reason. The gospel is a threat. Jesus is a threat to their little kingdoms. And I think it's a truism to say that when we become a threat, we also become a target. When we become a threat, we become a target. So let us not be surprised when we encounter hostility. I want to clarify that when we encounter hostility for the gospel, not if we encounter hostility because we're being insufferable jerks. So assuming that we are encountering hostility because we're preaching the gospel despite our good conduct, we should not be surprised, but we should also remember the Lord's teaching about how to respond to such hostility and persecution. Three things. I want us to remember three things when we, are, when we encounter hostility and persecution. Number one, we should remember that we are blessed. We should remember that we are blessed. The Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Number two, remember not to respond in kind. Remember that we are blessed and we should remember not to respond in kind. Matthew 5.44, Jesus again, Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We should remember that we are blessed. We should remember not to respond in kind. And thirdly, we should remember that Christ himself set an example and left it to God the Father to judge. 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 and 22, the Apostle Peter writes, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not, did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Herod's response is one of latent hostility that will unfortunately soon bloom into overt hatred and murder. And I suspect that as we get closer to the return of the Lord, the same will be true of us, that we will encounter that the world's hostility will become less latent and more overt as we get closer to the Lord's appearing. But at this point, the wise men depart, apparently believing Herod's statement that he wants to worship the child too. The first part of verse 9 simply says, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And that is where our story must end for now.
to be continued. But I don't want to end on such a morose note of hostility and persecution and hatred. This is Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of the year. I want to focus on Christ. I want to be just like the wise men. We have come to worship him. That's why we're here. That's why we're here this Sunday. It's why we're here the other 51 Sundays out of the year. It's what I want to do 365 days out of the year. I want to worship Jesus. Some may be indifferent. Others may be hostile. But others will move heaven and earth to pay homage and give honor to Jesus. Because Jesus did not stay a child. He grew up. He grew up to be a man. He grew up to be a man who taught what is right. He grew up to be a man who healed the sick, cast out demons, raised the dead. He became a man who was crucified. Not for his own sins, because he had none. He took upon himself the wrath of a holy God against sin. And he died, and he was buried, but God raised him from the dead. No more to see corruption. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not a legend, not a myth, but a fact, foretold by the Jewish scriptures, foreseen, or excuse me, eyewitness by the Jewish prophets, eyewitnessed by the Jewish apostles, excuse me. Not a legend, but fact. And now we can come by faith in him. By faith in him, we can receive forgiveness of our sins, rescue from the wrath that is coming, and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith and by faith alone. I'd like to invite anyone who does not know Jesus currently, put away indifference, Put away hostility, come by faith, receive forgiveness. And for those of us who already do know the Lord Jesus by faith in his gospel, let's receive once again of his grace and of his mercy this Christmas. We have come to worship him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this Christmas season. Although you did not explicitly command us to set aside the 25th of December as the birth of Jesus, yet in your providence, you put it in the hearts of your church to do so. Thank you for everything that this season means. A birth of a new king a king that you have chosen, a king not just for Israel, but for all nations, just as you promised beforehand that the heir of David would rule from sea to sea. We have come to worship him. I pray that for those who hear me, that you would move on them. I even pray that for myself. I pray that you would move upon me to worship you. Whatever our state, whatever our spiritual state, move us to worship Christ by the power of the Spirit and ultimately to the glory of you, God the Father. And so let it be. Amen.